Amayur Fejali de Cunha, known as Tato, didn't feel like a tyrant. He felt like a hard-working rancher. Tato wanted to raise cattle and plant crops on his newly purchased parcel of land near the remote Brazilian jungle town of Anapu. But a group of desperately poor farmers already lived on Tato's land. They called their settlement Boa Esperanza, meaning Place of Hope. Tato learned that one settler, Luis, had built a home right where Tato planned to build his own house. Tato arrived with a group of pistoleros, hired gunmen to evict Luis. Tato's private army threatened to kill every member of Luis's family in front of him. At gunpoint, Luis and his family finally left. Tato burned their home to the ground behind them. Tato didn't feel sorry for Luis, who he saw as an entitled squatter, unwilling to work and dependent on government handouts. Tato immediately began building his own new home, but just a few days later, his worst nightmare walked onto the construction site in the form of a 73-year-old nun, Sister Dorothy Stang. Across Brazil, she had fearlessly faced down wealthy ranchers and their private armies. Landless settlers called her the Angel of the Amazon. Tato saw the Ohio-born Dorothy not as an angel, but as a foreign terrorist. He'd heard that Sister Dorothy gave settlers guns so they could kill men like himself. And now, here she was, standing on Tato's land, interrupting the construction of Tato's home. Worse yet, she was armed with government documents claiming Luis, not Tato, rightfully owned this land. Enraged, Tato turned to two pistoleros, Raifran das Neves Sales and Clodoaldo Carlos Bastista, and asked, would you have the courage to kill the sister? Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on Sister Dorothy Stang, the Ohio-born nun shot dead while reading aloud from her Bible in Para, Brazil. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. After more than three decades of working on behalf of the Amazon's poorest people, Sister Dorothy Stang's life ended tragically on February 12, 2005, at the age of 73. She was killed by the order of two wealthy Brazilian ranchers, Vitalmiro Bastos de Mora, known as Bida, and Amair Fejuli da Cunha, known as Tato. Sister Dorothy was an angel in the eyes of the poor landless farmers of Brazil. But Brazil's largest landowners called her a communist and terrorist. To understand why Sister Dorothy was assassinated, it's necessary to know a little bit about the men that ordered the murder and the cultural history that defined them. Because these two men, 
were products of over 150 years of violent land disputes that plagued Brazil's history. The land conflicts in Brazil trace their roots back to the 1500s when the country was under Portuguese rule. Although this history is immensely complex, we will try and simplify it as much as possible. The King of Portugal divided up Brazil's land to wealthy patrons in the form of land grants, known as Cesmarias. If the patrons were unable to make the land sufficiently productive, Cesmarias' ownership returned to the king. The consequences of this allocation were twofold. First, because poor rural workers did not have land of their own, they took to squatting on the periphery of wealthy properties. Second, when Brazil gained its independence in 1825, there was a vast portion of land which nobody owned because the King of Portugal was no longer in power. This meant that both the rural poor and the wealthy landowners began to make a push for these unclaimed lands. The newfound country of Brazil needed a strong and thorough land policy that helped sort out these issues, but unfortunately, this never came to fruition. Private individuals continued to occupy and claim public lands without any legal precedent. From the outset, this made the concept of land ownership in Brazil incredibly complicated. Exacerbating the problem was the fact that Brazil is the home of the Amazon rainforest, a geographical landmark responsible for some of the world's most valuable resources. As the country tapped into the riches of this natural gold mine, various infrastructure projects demanded the need for more and more migrant laborers. These landless workers were thus forced to occupy various tracts of private land as they pursued new job opportunities. All these factors ensured that violent confrontation between migrant landless laborers and wealthy landowners was all but inevitable. And sure enough, armed conflict periodically broke out over the first half of the 20th century. One example was the Contestado War, which raged from 1912 to 1916 and ended with the Brazilian military raising entire peasant villages, destroying as many as 5,000 homes at a time. Such conflicts continued over the years, but a viable solution was never found, and these disputes continued throughout the 20th century. In 1964, a military dictatorship took over Brazil. Called the Brazilian Miracle, the period that followed was a time of substantial economic expansion. Fueling Brazil's growth was a favorable trade agreement with the United States intended to lure big businesses to the country. On the surface, Brazil was thriving. But miracles come with a price. This period of time also came to be known by another name, savage capitalism. In the 1960s, two major roads were built to link the rainforest to the capital city of Brasilia. These were the Belum Brasilia and the Trans-Amazon Highway, also known as the Trans-Amazonica. These roads brought waves of entrepreneurial migrants to the area looking to stake their claims on Brazil's natural resources. Many of these migrants had no idea they needed to obtain a deed of ownership before they could begin farming or clear-cutting a piece of the forest. They arrived, built homes, and began work, all without a clear claim to their land. In 1966, the Superintendency of Development of the Amazon, or SUDAM, was established to finance large-scale business ventures. 
In the Amazon, this meant cattle ranches and sawmills with big budgets and rich owners. Huge swaths of the rainforest were cut down to graze cattle or to fuel sawmills. It was a land grab like nothing ever seen before in the Amazon. When big businesses arrived, if there were people already living on the land, they were evicted by force. These were often the settlers who unknowingly built their livelihood without a deed of ownership. But the wealthy ranchers and sawmill owners saw themselves as heroes and job creators. They were the architects of Brazil's rapidly growing economy and international trade arrangements. This was despite the fact that they acquired public lands by bribing government officials. On top of this, an increasing push toward mechanization of agricultural labor drastically reduced the number of jobs available on large farms and ranches. With no land or money, poor farmers had no political power and received no assistance from the Brazilian government. What little assistance they did receive came largely from Catholic communities. A Catholic doctrine first articulated at the end of the 19th century stated that private property should serve a social function. This doctrine became a rallying cry for the landless movement in Brazil. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, landless farmers organized and occupied land across Brazil. These large-scale occupations were violently opposed by the military government, but supported by Catholic priests and nuns. In 1984, the Movimento dos Trabalhadores Rurais Sem Terra, or the Movement of Rural Landless Workers, was formally founded. Generally referred to as MST, this movement worked closely with the Brazilian Catholic Church. Widely considered a Marxist organization, the MST was seen as a terrorist group by Brazil's richest landowners. Clearly, the problem was deep-seated and immensely complicated, but it boils down to one distinct point. Land ownership had never been distinctly defined in Brazil, and therefore, both the landless workers and the wealthy landowners had a reasonable argument for their rights to certain property. One advocate for landowners' rights was rancher Vital Miro Bastos de Mora, known as Bida. For Bida, and landowners like him, the Amazon was a beautiful, wide-open frontier, begging to be developed. To help Brazil's economy, ranchers like Bida were not just encouraged to cut down the rainforest, they were offered government funding. In the late 1980s, Brazil's military dictatorship staggered and collapsed under the burden of out-of-control inflation and public unrest. Inflation continued to skyrocket. Brazil stopped making payments on its foreign debt. The pressure was more intense than ever for Brazil to exploit its ample natural resources in a way that could stop an impending economic collapse. In 1998, Sudam, after decades of relative inactivity, started issuing business loans again. With demand for Brazilian beef spiking as a result of mad cow disease panic in Europe, it was the perfect time to start a cattle ranch. Into this milieu rode Bida, a cattle rancher with a Sudam loan in hand, ready to do his part to develop the Amazon and save Brazil from going broke. In 2004, Bida bought 3,000 hectares of land in the state of Para from an acquaintance. 
This landholding, equivalent to about 5,600 football fields, made Bita one of the biggest landowners in the Anapu area of the Amazon. Bita claims that when he bought the land, he was told that the area would not be parceled out by the government. So, when he sold some land to his friend Amayir Fejoli da Cunha, also known as Tato, he had every reason to believe this was a legal transaction. But at the same time, the government told various migrant settlers that the land was government-owned and could be parceled out for farming. Land disputes like this one often resulted from bureaucratic miscommunication. The National Institute for Colonization and Agrarian Reform, or INCRA, was an organization established in response to pressure from movements like MST. INCRA parceled out public lands to settlers for subsistence farming. But Sudam often designated land for big business that INCRA had already claimed for agrarian settlement. This bureaucratic stalemate inevitably led to violence between two groups of people who believed they owned the same land. Bida had laid out a massive amount of cash to acquire his land. He moved his family there, hired employees, bought cattle, and sold parcels to others like Tato. And now he was being told that the land wasn't his. Even worse, there was a new fear circulating among large landholders. An environmentalist American nun, active in Brazilian politics for decades, was said to be organizing an insurrection. To destabilize the Brazilian government, rumor had it, Sister Dorothy Stang was arming the landless farmers and preaching eco-terrorism. She'd even trained herself as a lawyer and repeatedly won in court against landowners. If the so-called angel of the Amazon really was planning to start a revolution in Brazil, she had to be stopped before an uprising broke out. But how did a plump septuagenarian nun with gold-rimmed spectacles become both the most formidable hero and the most menacing enemy in the Amazon? It wasn't a path anyone would have predicted, except perhaps for young Dorothy herself. Coming up, we will find out more about Dorothy's unlikely journey to Brazil. Now, back to the story. Dorothy Stang was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1931 to Air Force Colonel Henry Stang and his wife Edna. The family was devoutly Catholic. One of nine children, Dorothy's childhood was defined by religion. She found herself immensely devoted to her religious studies and was particularly attracted to the idea of missionary service. Enough so that on July 26, 1948, at 17 years old, Dorothy joined the Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur, a religious order focused on aiding the poor. The sisters sent Dorothy to Phoenix, Arizona, where she began her missionary work in earnest. She established educational programs for the children of Mexican migrants in the area, as well as on the nearby Navajo Reservation. Dorothy made it her primary mission to ensure that people's basic needs were met. If she saw that someone was going hungry, she canvassed businesses and households for food. When she saw a family of nine living in a rusty old bus, Sister Dorothy wouldn't rest until she found safe housing for them. Dorothy educated the migrant workers about their rights in the United States, telling them that their children had a right to a free public education. 
She warned agricultural laborers that the insecticides used to spray the crops were dangerous to their health. Her work was both tenacious and thorough. However, as the years rolled by, Dorothy still felt she wasn't fulfilling her calling. So in 1966, at age 39, Dorothy applied to serve as a missionary with the Sisters of Notre Dame's newest chapter in Brazil. With her decision made, Sister Dorothy glowed with hope and religious fervor as she prepared for her first international mission. However, Rio de Janeiro was a culture shock for Dorothy. The heat and humidity were unbearable, but the vast divide between rich and poor was worse. The Brazilian people lived under the ever-watchful eye of the military police who patrolled the streets. It was a far cry from life in the States. But with her trademark tenacity, Dorothy relentlessly sought to adapt to her new environment. In the mountain village of Petropolis, 42 miles from Rio de Janeiro, Dorothy attended mission training school. She studied liberation theology and the philosophy of resistance. She also started to study Portuguese, the official language of the country, and at the age of 39, rapidly gained fluency and soon conversed easily with native speakers. After mission training, Dorothy was assigned with a couple of her fellow sisters to Coroata in the state of Maranhão. With only a couple of cobbled streets and a main square, Coroata was hardly worthy of being called a town. There was no health care available and no school for the children. Maranhão overall was a feudal isolated state where authorities accepted missionaries on the strict condition that they stick to religion and stay out of politics. Of course, Sister Dorothy, the fireball, had every intention of disobeying those orders. Dorothy believed she was sent to Brazil not just to share the word of God, but to actually create God's kingdom on earth. The concepts of peace, justice, and righteousness were as close to Dorothy's heart as her well-worn Bible. She built schools with her own hands and learned to farm the land. She fought fiercely for the rights of the poor to health care, education, and land on which to raise their families. Gracinha, a woman who lived in Coroata during Dorothy's time there, said of the nun's social justice work, quote, In the old days, the church never used to belong to the poor. It was the church of the rich. Well, the sisters changed all that. Once a month, Dorothy and her fellow sisters participated in what was known as the Desobriga, when they would visit the rural areas in the countryside. The villagers treated this occasion as a holiday. Traditionally, on these visits, the sisters would stay as guests in the houses of the large landowners. But with the church now focused on uplifting the poor, the sisters began staying with the villagers. This change angered the landowners. They responded by sending their private armies to tear down the schools Dorothy and her fellow sisters built. Wealthy ranchers and loggers feared their employees would demand better pay or leave the region if they obtained education. To stop Sister Dorothy, the large landowners complained to local authorities that the nuns were preaching communism and trying to start a revolution. Dorothy's work had become political. Between offending Maranhão's large landowners and convincing the local poor to agitate for their rights, Sister Dorothy and her fellow women religious were quickly becoming a problem for the government. For the first time, 
Dorothy's work was met with violent resistance. In the late 1960s, Dorothy was personally labeled a communist. With the world consumed by the Cold War, this was an extremely serious accusation. Word spread across Brazil like wildfire about the American nun trying to start a communist revolution in Maranhão. Sister Dorothy's life changed from that moment on. She was constantly followed, harassed, photographed, accused of supplying arms to the peasants, and threatened with death or imprisonment. Sister Dorothy was publicly defiant in the face of these threats, but privately she began to realize how often she came inches from death in the course of her work. She felt it was time to move on to a more secluded area. An opportunity to do just that soon presented itself. In the early 1970s, the Brazilian government launched a public relations campaign to encourage the poor to move into the Amazonian basin. This newfound patriotic effort was called Land Without Men for Men Without Land. Dorothy watched what, by now, she referred to as her people move westward, trusting in the government's promises. She traveled west toward the frontier with the people she had come to love. Yet, no matter how far she went, she couldn't escape the public's fears. As the government continued to stoke fears of communism, foreign Catholics like Dorothy drew more and more suspicion. Priests were beaten, threatened, and even deported from Brazil. With priests in short supply, nuns began taking over certain priestly duties. Sister Dorothy held baptisms, weddings, and first communions when no priest was available. But even as her flock grew, Sister Dorothy struggled just to survive. A Lutheran pastor named Marga, who visited Dorothy in the early 1970s, found her living with the Farm Workers Union in a two-room building with a leaky roof. All her worldly possessions were piled on one shelf so she could keep them covered in plastic. There was not a single morsel of food in the house. When Marga cooked Sister Dorothy a hot meal, she burst out laughing because she'd forgotten what meat tasted like. Despite her extreme poverty, Marga found Dorothy joyful and fulfilled. She loved the farm workers she helped to organize. In 1974, Dorothy arrived in the village of Abel Figueiredo, which had no infrastructure to speak of. It was far from the city. Dorothy hoped that here she could avoid her most dangerous enemies. Deep in the Amazon, Sister Dorothy and her people again built schools. They hoped that this time, no mercenaries would show up to tear them down. But the large landowners followed like sharks following blood in the water. The landless settlers cleared the land, doing all the hardest work. Then the wealthy sharks came with men and guns to take the land from them. Dorothy and her fellow sisters did their best to bring light to this issue. They documented the murders and violent evictions committed by the landowners and sent messages to the outside world begging for help. The sisters soon received a message in return. They were ordered to report to the army headquarters in the town of Maraba for routine questioning. Though she wasn't harmed by the army in Maraba, Dorothy took the threat seriously. She, her fellow clergy and women religious serving in Brazil, refused to back down. With Sister Dorothy's help, the Catholic Church established the Pastoral Lands Commission to support the landless settlers in their fight to claim and keep their land. 
In response, the Brazilian military unilaterally declared all priests and nuns were communists. In a country with millions of Catholics, the Catholic Church was officially an enemy of the state. Coming up, we'll explore how Sister Dorothy's fight in Brazil became life-threatening. Now, back to the story. When we left Sister Dorothy Stang in 1975, her efforts in establishing the Pastoral Lands Commission led to the Catholic Church being declared a communist organization and an enemy to the Brazilian state. A Catholic church in the town of San Geraldo was shuttered by the military. The parishioners were so terrified, they ran home and burned their Bibles. The Sisters of Notre Dame were accused of creating a faction of subversives in the jungles of the Amazon. They were officially warned not to continue their work. Considering the brutal treatment their religious brothers and sisters were enduring, the nuns knew this was no empty threat. Some of the Catholics working in Brazil realized the situation was getting intolerably dangerous and left the country. Dorothy, however, refused to abandon her people. In 1977, Dorothy again moved deeper into the Amazon to an area with no name of its own near a road called PA-150 running through the jungle state of Para. Rather than comply with the military's orders, Sister Dorothy hoped to move far enough away they couldn't or wouldn't follow her. This time, the other Sisters of Notre Dame decided against going with Sister Dorothy, so she went alone. There were no schools near PA-150, and a majority of the adults in the area were illiterate. Dorothy made building schools a top priority. She worked to organize workers' unions and held town meetings to discuss local issues. Many people within the community loved Dorothy and everything she did for the poor. But over her two years in Para, she also made enemies. Dorothy knew that a certain local rancher had been involved in the murder of a poor settler. She was asked to hold a christening and name the rancher godfather to a new baby. She refused, fearlessly telling the rancher he was no true Christian if he participated in murder. Villagers warned her that in retaliation to her refusal, the local ranchers might kill her in defense of one of their own. Again, Sister Dorothy had made too many powerful enemies to stay in one place. So again, she moved. In 1979, Dorothy settled in the town of Jacunda. It was an area rife with land conflicts and violence. As was her way, Dorothy supported the settlers, and they loved her for standing with them. But the big landowners here had everybody in their pocket, including the local police, who issued a warrant for Dorothy's arrest. The fuse in Jacunda was short, and it wouldn't take much to light it. The landowners, the ranchers, and loggers were angry. The settlers armed themselves. Dorothy preached nonviolence, but neither side was listening. Death lists began to circulate among the community, targeting subversives. Dorothy's name turned up on one of these lists. Dorothy was 50 years old now, and though she remained fearless in her public statements, she worried about the death list and felt retreating deeper into the jungle was once again her best bet. 
1982, Sister Dorothy traveled alone to the town of Altamira, situated on the Shingu River, and presented herself to the local bishop. She asked to be assigned to work with the very poorest of the poor. Dom Irwin, the bishop of Shingu, sent Sister Dorothy to the Trans-Amazon East, which he called the end of the world. Later, the bishop would remember Dorothy as not just a Samaritan, but, quote, a prophet, God's deepest desire. The prophet doesn't have a voice of her own. She speaks for God, end quote. Dorothy wound up in a place called Nazare. It was a small town with a dormitory and a simple meeting place where the roads were choked with dust in the dry season and flooded when it rained. The people built Dorothy a house of mud and clay. She planted flowers out front, which delighted the women and children especially. Dorothy found work for the men, taught the children to read, helped with land disputes, and argued passionately for the rights of women in Nazare. At last, it seemed she had found a place where she was safe and adored. Sister Dorothy was determined to build a community center for the town, which could be used as a school and also for community meetings. In 1984, she invited her nephew from the States, Richard Stang, to Nazare. Richard, who was an engineer at NASA, agreed to help build what Dorothy was already calling the Centro de Nazare. By 1989, Nazare's development was coming along nicely. It was becoming a functioning town, thanks in large part to Sister Dorothy. But again, the large landowners came sniffing around. But Dorothy was fed up. She called the land sharks out by name and started to help local farmers obtain the proper titles to their land. In return, Dorothy received more death threats, threats that rattled the unwavering woman. 25 years of fighting the good fight had been tough on Dorothy physically and mentally, who in 1991 was 60 years old. For the first time since arriving in Brazil, Sister Dorothy returned to the United States for a six-month sabbatical, during which she planned to study creation spirituality. Creation spirituality was about putting human needs in touch with the cosmos. This new theology aligned with the global environmentalist movement that had sprung up since Dorothy first left the developed world. When Dorothy returned to Brazil six months later, her aim was to teach the people how to care for the land. She began preaching sustainable farming methods that preserve some of the native fauna of the Amazon and taught farmers to eschew the destructive slash-and-burn style of planting, which cleared huge sections of the forest for cattle or crops. But if Sister Dorothy hoped a six-month sabbatical would encourage her enemies to forget about her, she was soon disappointed. In 1998, the Brazilian government announced the Bela Manche project, a gigantic dam to be built on the Xingu River. The announcement created an immediate flood of migrants in the area, believing jobs would soon be available. In reality, it would be years before construction began. In the interim, Dorothy helped these new migrants find land to settle and farm. While Dorothy worked to integrate the migrant workers, the Amazon Development Agency revived its financing of large-scale projects. As such, loggers, ranchers, and land speculators also poured into the Xingu region. This new competition for land gave birth to the most intense and violent land conflicts the Xingu region had ever seen. 
More than three decades after arriving in Brazil, Sister Dorothy Stang was thrust into the middle of this fight. Because of what she learned during her sabbatical in the U.S., Dorothy was now more willing to engage directly with the Brazilian government. She took her gospel of sustainability directly to Brazil's leaders. There was a newly elected leftist majority in the Brazilian government, which sympathized with Dorothy and agreed with her new model of sustainable agriculture. Her ideas could help curtail the rapid deforestation of the Amazon. With Dorothy's input, the government created the Project for Sustainable Land Development, the PDS. Huge tracts of uninhabited and untouched land were designated by the government as part of the PDS project. Any and all previous titles to this land were voided under a provision of Brazilian law allowing the government to take back land that isn't developed within five years of being granted to a landowner. Settlers willing to use Dorothy's sustainable methods started streaming into the area immediately and clearing the land for homes and farming. But the land sharks were again circling, waiting for their opportunity to attack. In 1998, a group of PDS settlers in the state of Para, deep in the Amazonian forest, were visited by gunmen and told to leave. Dorothy told the settlers the land was rightly theirs. The settlers listened to Dorothy and bravely refused to go. Then, in 1999, Settlers on Lot 126 of the PDS, just off the Transamazonica Highway, were threatened by the private army of a landowner claiming to have Sudam permission and financing for a project. Again, the settlers resisted with Dorothy's help. This was becoming a habit, and the large landowners didn't like the trend. In 2002, Settlers occupied land in a section of Esperanza after confirming with the government that it was free of any prior claims. No sooner had the migrant farmers cleared the land and started building, than gunmen arrived and tried to force them to leave. Dorothy by now understood the Brazilian legal system well enough to serve as a lawyer, in addition to her roles as nun, prophet, farmer, policy analyst, and construction worker. She took the case to court for the Esperanza settlers. The judge sided with the settlers, confirming that the land belonged to them. But the large landowners had powerful allies, too. On April 30, 2003, the mayor of the city of Anapu passed a motion via the town council censuring Dorothy. The council named her, quote, a threat to peace in the region. Dorothy repeatedly filed suit on behalf of the poor. She would often arrive at a government official's office and wait for hours to be seen. If the person she came to see left without speaking to Sister Dorothy, she would wait overnight. Her persistence was cultivating attention, both positive and negative. In the latter half of 2004, the Pastoral Lands Commission of the Church released its Rural Violence Report listing people in Brazil who had received death threats due to land conflicts. The report listed specific prices in Brazilian reales for targets. $10,000 for a union member, $15,000 for a town councillor, and $20,000 for a priest. The second largest bounty of all, Sister Dorothy Stang, with a price of $50,000. Dorothy responded with her trademark courage, saying, I know they want to kill me, 
but I will not go away. My place is here alongside these people who are constantly humiliated by the powerful. Dorothy's resolve never wavered. In December of 2004, Dorothy's brother David and her sister Maggie visited her in Brazil. They realized the threat to her life was very real. But Dorothy laughed it off by saying, Who would kill an old nun like me? It was around this time that Dorothy's Brazilian citizenship was granted. She was also awarded the title of Honorary Citizen of the State of Para and received the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the Brazilian Bar Association. Despite the recognition, tensions in Boa Esperanza were at a boiling point. Gunmen ran off settlers, houses were burned, crops were destroyed. Dorothy continued to fight for the settlers and, as was her way, wasn't afraid of naming those responsible. In January 2005, in the city of Altamira, a secret meeting took place at a hotel. Politicians and landowners decided that something had to be done about Dorothy. At the same time, Dorothy sent a letter to the Para State Police Chief, accusing Vitalmiro Bastos de Mora, called Bida, and his right-hand man, Amayir Fejoli da Cunha, called Tato, of using fraudulent land titles to lay claim to land. Bida responded with another attempt to violently evict the settlers. Instead of leaving, with Dorothy's guidance, the farmers took the case to courts, asserting that their titles to their land were legitimate. In early 2005, a judge ruled in favor of the settlers. Bida was ordered to leave the 8,000 acres he had claimed in Esperanza, but he refused. Instead, he sent Tato and his gunmen to yet again intimidate and harass the settlers. In early February, Luis, a farmer from Esperanza, told Dorothy how Tato and his army threatened to kill him and his family, how they taunted them all through the night, and in the end, how they burned down his home. Dorothy was infuriated on behalf of Luis, but she continued to advise a non-violent response. On February 11, 2005, Dorothy arranged a series of town meetings to assure the settlers in Boa Esperanza that everything would be okay. She was eager to tell them she had confirmed with the INCRA that the titles to their land were valid, proving the land belonged to them, not Bita and Tato. Dorothy was promised police protection for the meetings, but when she went to the station to pick up her escort, the police sergeant told her they couldn't go. Dorothy suspected Bida of bribing or intimidating the police. So Dorothy was on her own, but she felt comfortable that way. Arriving in Esperanza, Dorothy met some of the settlers who were starting to gather for the meetings in the town square. She told them she wanted to visit the community center. A chill went through the assembled settlers. The community center was located near Luis's house, which had just been burned down. Tato and his men were up there. Dorothy was urged not to go, but she didn't listen. A fellow sister of Notre Dame, Nelda, accompanied Dorothy on her way to the community center. Geraldo, one of the settler's sons who had become close to Dorothy, also tagged along. They traveled up the road and passed the remains of Luisa's house. Continuing deeper into the forest, they found Tato and his men building a house. Sister Dorothy asked whose house he was building. Tato replied, mine. 
Dorothy explained to Tato that the land didn't belong to him. She pulled out papers from her bag from the Incra that proved the land was rightfully owned by Luis. Nelda and Geraldo tried to convince Dorothy to drop the issue, but she stood firm, telling Tato he was on stolen land. Tato had no intention of leaving. He threatened Sister Dorothy, telling her, quote, If you insist on putting your men on my land, you won't be able to count the number of bodies that leave this place on a stretcher. Dorothy stood her ground. Geraldo and Nelda had to take Dorothy by the arm and lead her away before the situation became violent. Geraldo held his breath, hoping that Tato didn't decide right there and then to put an end to Dorothy and her meddling with a couple of bullets to the back. But Dorothy returned to the town safely and told the settlers about her confrontation with Tato. Dorothy tried to assure her supporters that everything would be okay and that God was on their side. But the frightened faces staring back at her were less than reassured. Geraldo wanted Dorothy to come back to Anapu with him, but she refused. There was too much work to do. Dorothy turned in for the night, bedding down at a local farmer's shack. In the dead of night, two men approached, Rifron and Clodo Aldo, Tato's gunmen the very men whose manhood Tato had challenged by asking them, do you have the courage to kill the sister? Rifron pulled a 38 handgun from his waistband. They circled the house, trying to find a crack in the shack's wall through which they could stick the barrel of the gun and shoot Dorothy in her sleep. But they couldn't find an opening, and on the moonless night, they couldn't tell the difference between Dorothy's sleeping body and the farmer, Vicente. They left without firing a shot. As Rifron and Clodo Aldo walked back to their shack on Tato's land, Clodo Aldo pointed out a small hill to Rifron just up from Vicente's house. Dorothy would have to walk that way in the morning. On February 12, 2005, Dorothy was up bright and early. She was eager for the meeting that day with the settlers, eager for them to start making plans for the future of Esperanza. As Sister Dorothy walked up the road, Rifron and Clodo Aldo stepped out of the woods and confronted her. Dorothy calmly tried to convince them that what Tata was doing was in error, but these men weren't interested in hearing her case. Sister Dorothy decided to keep on walking past the men when she heard Rifron yell, Sister Dorothy! She turned around. Rifron was pointing a gun at her. As a light rain fell, Dorothy and Rifron were both frozen, staring at each other. After a moment, Dorothy reached into her bag. Rifron yelled, Take your hand out of your bag. Is that a gun there or what? Sister Dorothy said, I have no gun. My only weapon is this, and pulled out her Bible. She opened the book and started to read from the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, lady, that's enough of that, Rifron said. He shot Dorothy. Hit in the head, Dorothy fell face first into the mud. Standing over her, Rifron pulled the trigger again, shooting Dorothy over and over until the gun was empty. 
The angel of the Amazon lay dead, face down in the mud, next to her Bible. Join us next week for part two as the impact of Sister Dorothy Stang's death reverberates around Brazil and the world. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of Sister Dorothy Stang. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Joseph C. Muscat and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Thomas.